If you feel like screaming, you scream. If you feel like crying, you cry. Don't try to follow a textbook or have somebody else tell you what to do. Trust yourself, your own natural emotions. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. And that voice you heard at the top there was psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in an interview with Oprah back in 1980. And her words, don't try to follow a textbook when it comes to dealing with loss, might sound a little odd coming from the woman who is best known for writing the literal textbook on grief. It's a 1969 book called On Death and Dying. And in it, she shared these conversations that she had been having with dying people like literal transcripts of these interviews. This is my colleague, Rachel Cusick. She works for the show Radio Lab, And for the past year or so, Rachel's been working on a piece all about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and her most famous legacy, the five stages of grief. You've probably heard them before. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. These stages of grief, Rachel found, really evolved over the years. They actually started out as the five stages of dying, which Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote about in her book. I think there is a great attempt to deny the reality of death in this country. Before On Death and Dying came out, few people in the medical profession were talking about death openly. Dr. Kubler-Ross traveled the world talking about it, giving sold-out lectures and interviews, as Rachel describes in her Radiolab piece. She wouldn't stand behind the podium. She chose to sit on the lecture table, swinging her legs back and forth. She would just talk. It was a horrible question that we're all afraid of and that never happens. That the patient looks at you and says, am I going to die? But when she started speaking in that little soft voice, she could have an audience in the palm of her hand for the next 45 minutes. I mean, there was not a sound in the audience. She just had him. Like, I didn't think it was possible to see a twinkle in someone's eyes from, like, fuzzy YouTube archival videos. But when (laughs) she speaks about this, you just see this superpower in her. And how do you react to a nasty, unpleasant, mean patient? What do you do? Honest, Gabriel? At one point, um, she was recalling a discussion with somebody, and she said, and what do you think he was saying when uh, I heard that? And a a young guy sitting close to me answered the question. He said he was afraid. That you come in peppy, that you come in and actually function. He was afraid. Because you're going to rub in all the things that he's in the process of losing. Just the level of connection that she could generate. This is actually where we get to the stages, like the five stages, because during these speeches... And if we summarize, we have found that most of our patients go through similar stages. Elizabeth would talk about this series of reactions she had seen her dying patients go through. Uh, Then this denial will be replaced with a tremendous anger. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And this Mm -hmm. is true for all patients, without exceptions. She sort of used them to organize her talks. She said back in the 60s, there was no common language. There was nothing they could talk about. So she said by creating... 
five stages is a something simple that any layman or any family member can remember. People definitely remembered them. And over the years, these stages were eventually applied to grief. But the stages have their limitations. Rachel knows this personally, how frustrating it can be when your grief is not moving through a prescribed set of milestones. Rachel's mother, Sue, died when she was a child. And she wrote about that loss in a modern love essay in the New York Times last fall. All I remember is my grandmother appearing in front of our home in her turtle green Chrysler, Rachel wrote. She always seemed to exude a sense that the show must go on. I was really moved by Rachel's essay when I read it. So we asked Rachel if I could talk with her, together with her grandmother, about grief. I hope it goes well. I'm a little apprehensive, so anyway. She says she doesn't want to be a flop. (laughs) (laughs) Rachel's grandmother, Marilyn, helped raise Rachel and her four siblings. She's 85 now and recently got some bad news about her own health. I had renal cancer and it's metastasized. So it's it's in the bones, you know, I'm being treated with immunotherapy. And, um, I, you know, it's not a great diagnosis. I'm just assuming this, Grandma, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were probably most afraid to tell me because of how, how hard I would take it. Um, oh, absolutely, because yeah. I know uh, more than any of the, the children, she, Rachel counts on me. You know, I'm not, not counts on me. She just wants me to be present, you know, <laughs> wants me to be here. How old were you when your mom died? I was six. And Rachel, you were the youngest of the bunch. Yeah. And Marilyn, when you think back on those first years after Sue's death... And what you wanted to do to show up for these five kids after their mother's death. Like, how did you think about it? Well, um, when, when Sue became ill, I, I, uh, I left my job to go help her during that last illness. And um, I, didn't, I didn't think about it. There wasn't a decision to make. It, that's what I needed to do. And then after she was gone, it was more, it was, I thought, uh, you know, how are these children going to survive? You know, how are they going to be raised in a really good way? And, you know, their mother was the most incredible mother. You know, she was a real Mother Earth. And, and the fact that I kept um, telling people that uh, their mother had died and they would get so upset. But I just, you know, I guess I was explaining why I was that presence that was there and you know their their father was there and their father was very much a part of everything but um you know I just felt that that was the most important thing I could do not necessarily that that's what I wanted to do because I had I had stayed home with my own children and then had a job that I liked and and but that's I, I didn't really couldn't give it a lot of thought and and your your grandmother just alluded to this, but Rachel, how did you experience what your how she would explain her presence when you all were in public that your mom wasn't there? What 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 do you remember? Yeah, we I just remember going to like Kohl's or Shoprite, and she we just spent so much time with her. It was like her little sidekick in so many ways, and it was just a matter of time before <laughs> before she just like starts talking and whispering to the people that you're you're talking to at the store. And you just hear her say it. 
I'm just the grandma. Like their monitor died. It was all in a whisper. Oh. <laughs> explaining was... why they didn't have this wonderful mother with them anyway. Yeah. That that sounds a little silly, but anyway. I don't think it sounds silly. <laughs> and so it was just like a, at first it's a little embarrassing, but I never was embarrassed to be, I think I never sensed the gap between us in a way. Like that was just my normal. So I never felt the need to tell strangers who she was. Do you remember talking about grief together with your grandmother when you were little? I don't really think we ever used grief in words that I could remember. I think she was always very, like, it was always in the room, loss. But I don't know how often we talked about the word grief. Grandma, do you remember ever, like, having a conversation about it? We we didn't really talk about grief. We didn't. And, and um, you know, that's that's probably a mistake, but we um, it was just there. It was just so present. It's, we didn't say like, wow, we're going through grief. But I do think like I would call her in moments where I was having a hard time, like in college or like we talked around the grief and the pain, but never really about this exact source of all of it all the time. I just don't think there's anything more devastating than losing your, I mean, I thought the worst thing that could happen is to lose a child. I lost a son. Um, too um, early on. But I think to lose your mother when you're a child is the worst thing that can happen. How old were you when you lost your son? When I lost my son, I was uh, probably 43. When you were grieving his death, um, did people talk to you about the stages of grief? Is that something that you heard? I, I did know about Kugler-Ross and all of that. The, the stages of grief, and I, I did, in preparation for this, I did look that up because I thought, <laughs> did I, um, you know, and, and you do go all those through all those different stages. But uh, I don't know, come down to the acceptance of the death of my children. I don't think you ever accept that. And, you know, I don't think... Um, like with my son, my son took his life, so there was no bargaining. Mm. But with Sue, you know, you do bargain, you know, why can't this be me instead of instead of Sue or whatever? And I, I, there's a lot of guilt involved in, you know, you as a parent, your whole job is to, uh, you know, have this child grow up as a normal human being. And if you don't do that, you failed in, in your job. So then to have that happen two times is unbelievable. Mm. Except with my Sue, um, there was something I could do for her and I could help her, you know, I could help her family. So in a way I was sort of redeemed, you know, redeemed this in my own head. I don't, I don't know. Shouldn't mm. be saying all this. So anyway, no. I'm I mean, saying it. Yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> I never heard you frame it that way. I think about, uh, you know, when I first experienced grief, it's, it's so, um, it's so all, uh, life changing, you know, that, that's how I felt with my son. It's just devastating that your whole life is, it's like, almost like your life is over. Your life has changed and, and never will be, um, okay again. Rachel, for you is, is, did people talk to you about the stages of grief when they were trying to be helpful? I never think we got like a pamphlet or anything. Like it was, it was always in the room. And like, I almost think that was the first way I learned about grief. 
um, because it was the only time in movies and TV shows or music even where you heard the word grief and then it was attached to like some kind of direction afterwards. And then I think because it's everywhere and you're not hearing it anywhere else, that becomes the thing that I would return to, not because people were forcing it on me, just because it's literally the only map that, that I had in a lot of ways. And did you ever come up against the limits of the map or feel frustrated with the map? Yeah, totally. Especially because I think like you just want to get out of that feeling of grief when it's overwhelming and you feel stuck. And I think for many, many years, I tried to move through versions of those stages, never to return again. And I think after many years of just feeling like I kept doing this like tilt-a-whirl of these stages and never getting out of it, I, instead of being angry at those things, I got very, like, I would beat myself up for being stuck in this feeling of grief for so long. Uh, I didn't get angry at them. I was, like, very, very upset with myself. Like, this this paradigm had made you feel like a failure. Yeah. I always felt like my grief was really messy and, like, showed publicly. And, like, I always struggled with eating. And it was all of these things that I was really ashamed of. And I think when there's this structure, like, the stages and you're not fitting into it, there's just some feeling about like, you are failing. Even if some of those words fit into your experience, I think there's just a lonesomeness that comes from thinking that that's how you have to feel. And then I think as I got a little bit older and finally started therapy, I just recognized that those feelings might not ever go away. Like they might get a little bit better. They might, I might be able to manage them when they come up, but they never go away. And that's when I got really angry at the stages themselves. When was that um, shift that you mentioned? How old were you? I think it was probably uh, maybe like 23, not not until like a year or two ago. This is new. Yeah, it's definitely new. One thing that I, I wonder, Marilyn, for you, what Rachel said about the the these sort of um, how isolating grief can feel, like I'm I'm s- struck by for you these these really deep losses you've experienced of um, you experienced within family you experienced alongside other people you loved who also were losing these people that they loved and yes yeah um, did how do you think about grief do you think of it as a solitary experience. Has it been helpful to think about grief as something that is shared with the people who are left? Well, I think it, it is shared. I know when my son died, uh, my my whole thought was to protect my two daughters. You know, the, the whole thing was that that their lives was going to be okay. And uh, because that's a, a terrible loss, um, you know, and then, you know, my husband and I had a difficulty in dealing with the loss of our son. And um, that was um, very hard. That was very difficult to share mm-hmm. uh, because um, you're inclined to, um, you, you feel guilty yourself. And then I think the other person sort of blames you too. You know, you blame, feels as though you blame them or whatever. It's, um, it just changes your whole life, this, this grief. Yeah. One thing you said that, I do think it's really hard when you get into that place of having to put your grief right next to other people's. I think our family often is like, well, you lost a mother. That's even harder than losing a daughter. And I always felt like, oh, I lost her when I was so young. You older kids had it worse because 
you remember her more and feeling like your grief is less worthy than another person's or less important at the moment, like a triage of grief. Mm. I don't, it's, it's definitely really hard, I've felt as I grow up. And even hearing you say like, well, you lost a mother, that's even hard. That just makes me sad because that's, that's not fair in a way to you. Coming up, I talk more with Rachel and Marilyn about their shared grief and how they're talking together about Marilyn's illness. You know, up until I got this last illness, I was extremely well, and I didn't really think too much about aging. I thought I still have, you know, 20 good years, but believe it or not. The last, what, 10 years, ever since I was older in high school, she then was able to step back a little bit more and have more of her own life. So I never looked at her as like she's aging. I think that that's why it was kind of a shock when she got the diagnosis because it was like she was in her prime in my in my eyes. (laughs) (laughs) You all have been sending in your experiences with infertility and discovering that becoming a parent could be a lot harder than you thought. Some of you realized this early on. When I was 16, I was diagnosed with acute ovarian failure, and I was told that I would probably never be able to get pregnant um, naturally. For others of you, it was a realization that came with time. I always thought that you fall in love, you get married, you have a baby, and that's just the way that your life works. So I've fallen in love, I'm getting married, But turns out it's a lot harder to have a baby when you both have vaginas. For many of you, like our guest from last week, Dori Shafrir, it is a long haul with plenty of obstacles. Our listener, Lorena's wife, went through six intrauterine insemination, or IUI, procedures to conceive their first child. And now Lorena is trying to get pregnant herself. IUI is covered by their insurance, but after four failed IUI procedures of her own, Lorena wonders if they should try IVF, which they would have to pay for out of pocket. What your guest said on that last episode couldn't ring more true, that it is wild to think that people can just have sex and have a baby because once you're going through this process, it's like, oh my gosh, it is so hard to make one. We want to keep hearing stories from you about what you've been up against when it comes to having kids. We've mostly heard from women so far, so men and non-binary people, we'd love to hear from you too. On the next episode, we meet a couple dealing with a gambling addiction that led to a financial and mental health crisis. It did not fit into my narrative for my life or how it could go. That I would have a husband who would gamble. Like, that just didn't even occur to me as a possibility, you know? I didn't make a decision that was based on valuing our relationship or valuing our marriage or valuing um, the time that we spent together. I made a, a, a decision out of pain and just shame. Financial therapist Amanda Clayman joins us again for another set of sessions. Our money sort of creates something that we need to deal with or something that we need to talk about. And in dealing with it and talking about the financial issue, we end up getting to talk about all of these other really, really important issues as well. Look out for our financial therapy series in our podcast feed starting August 4th.
This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sayo. Rachel Cusick lives in New York City and visits her grandma, Marilyn Ryland, at her home in New Jersey every month or so. I went out to visit her a couple weeks ago, and it's like my grandma is like one of the few people in life that I actually let take care of me because of our relationship like that. Mm. I don't feel guilty taking that from her, and I feel guilty taking it from other people. Mm. What's one way she took care of you when you were visiting recently that you remember? She like, she made these things called, what are they called? Fools, Grandma? Well, we called them strawberry fools, but it was, (laughs) you know, berries with whipped cream and uh, put them in pretty parfait glasses. And she sets the table and like you wake up and she has the coffee pot ready to go and like you get to come down in your pajamas and like... Just the way that you would if you were going to go back home or something. Like, that's what going to visit her feels like still, even though she's like, no, I feel like she shouldn't be the one making me strawberry fools these days. Marilyn's health is stable at the moment. But after she had cancer surgery last year, she needed a lot of help. Rachel moved in with Marilyn for about a month to take care of her. Like, I think that was the best month that I've spent with you. Because I, oh, I mean, was she was, she hated it. Like, she was so <laughs> upset when I had to put, like, Vaseline on her feet. She was like, I'm so sorry. But I loved it. I think because, one, I get to see the side of her as an adult. Like, there were so many moments where I realized how funny she is. And, like, as a kid, when she's making sure the world doesn't come crashing down, you don't get to be the funny one. And I got to see her as an adult, like her sense of humor in this way I didn't get to. And it's like a lot of one-on-one time. Like I had spent maybe a couple of days or a week with her one-on-one, but not like a month and some, you know, <laughs> that was special. <laughs> and then I think also just, I have this, this really complicated relationship with like caretaking. I think because I take so much care of myself that I'm really afraid of being a parent and like not having a mother. I'm really afraid of feeling trapped by this idea of caretaking. And I think being there and like so wanting to be there for her and take care of her and never did it feel like burdensome to know that that was possible was like a really special experience for me. Like it was hard. There were definitely moments where I could just see she was in so much pain or she was, there were were days that it was really tough, but she was also in a moment back when I was with her that she had this spirit about her that made a lot of the hard stuff, really fun in moments. <laughs> she'd walk around with her little, like, uh, she couldn't bend down from the surgery, so she'd want to, like, kick her up her sticks. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she wouldn't, like, ask for help all the time. And I was like, Grandma, don't bend down. Like, I'll come get it. That's why I'm here. And I would just hear the thing, like, clipping, like, across the house. <laughs> she's trying to pick up, like, a rag. And I look up, she's like, going fishing for rags. (laughs) Just little things like that. Like, I just think they were so delightful. And I wouldn't have gotten to see that if I wasn't there. Marilyn, you mentioned that you looked back at the Kubler-Ross stages and and to see what felt familiar or resonant. Um, Did they feel like feelings you've had about your your diagnosis and your illness? I, I... I thought about that, and I I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't think so. And maybe it's because of my age. I know when I first found out about the renal cancer and decided on the surgery, and um, 
the, the surgery was very risky. And I thought, if, you know, I'm going to do this and if it doesn't work, it's okay. It's okay for me to be gone. So I think there was an acceptance. Now, you know, I wasn't gone. So I can't say that I'm accepting it because I, you know, I may be really upset later, you know, yeah. maybe angry. And, uh, you know, so I, I don't know. I mean, there's always through your whole life, you're bargaining or I bargained through my whole life. So anyway, maybe what does that I, mean? I'm what sorry. bargaining? What, what do you mean you've bargained through your well, whole life? Well, no, you, um, that you're, um, well, I guess you're bargaining with God. So, you know, you know, why don't you do this for this or whatever? Just like when, when your mom was sick, you know, or, or when Stevie died, I would have much rather been dead than, ha- than have my child die. But um, you, you don't have that choice. And then you realize you don't have that choice and you've got to accept it. Mm-hmm. So anyway. If somebody is listening to this who is newly uh, experiencing loss of someone they loved a lot and um, they've heard about the stages of grief and they've heard about w- what feelings might, they might run into as they as they grieve this person who's gone, um, what would you say to them about the utility of, of, the, of those stages and, and, and how much to pay attention to them? You go ahead. Um. I think, I just think they, they're they just so narrow. And I think if you're so new to grief and you've never towed into this world, start there, but never stop there. Like I just, I never feel like you have to go into any of those boxes or all of them because of how lonesome grief is already. Grief doesn't need to make sense and it doesn't need to be neat. It might be very ugly and it definitely doesn't fit into five boxes that move along smoothly. I think just like totally taking that off the table, even though all the pain will still be there, it's just feel whatever you have to feel. I always wondered what it was like for me to be working on this story while you were sick. I don't know if you have any thoughts about it. Like I remember one day the nurse came to your house and I had the On Death and Dying book. And she gave me this look like, holy shit, like you're <laughs> really just out there doing it, aren't you? And, <laughs> and I wonder like what you feel about it. Is it is it weird? Is it comforting? Like what does that feel like for you? Uh, no, I just I thought it was something you needed to do. I just thought this was your way of of um, you know, of dealing with this. And uh, and that that's a smart way. That's an intelligent way to delve into it and see what it's all about. So I just thought that was a comfort to you, perhaps, and and that however it it worked out, it would be it would be okay. Yeah. That's Marilyn Ryland and Rachel Cusick. And now I want to share with you a little more of Rachel's Radiolab episode that she was working on while taking care of her grandma. It's called The Queen of Dying, and it's available in full in the Radiolab podcast feed. In this part, we hear what happened as Rachel read on death and dying after a lifetime of grappling with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's so-called five stages of grief. Here's Rachel. If you actually go back and read Elizabeth's book on death and dying, <sighs> which I did, I, uh, I just had to take my retainer out for reading this. I'd read it every night before bed. 
So yeah, there's like how many chapters? Oh my God, I'm so bad with Roman numerals. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. 12 chapters, only five stages. And the stages really just serve as these chapter headers. He starts each chapter with these poems. Like when you get to those pages, it's really hard to find just all these beautiful transcripts. One singular emotion. These means will last for different periods of time. And she says you could go through all these stages and then repeat some, replace each other, or exist at times side by side. This book is not a five-stage shaped anything. What does the preface say? I've worked with dying patients for the past two and a half years, and this book will tell about the beginning of this experiment. And the first page literally says, it is not meant to be a textbook on how to manage dying patients, nor is it intended as a complete study of the psychology of dying. It is simply an account of a new and challenging opportunity to refocus on the patient as a human being. This is the goal of the book, like, that is it. I'm simply telling the stories of my patients. The real substance of this book, it is hoped that it will encourage others not to shy away from the hopelessly sick, but to get closer to them. The ocean of color and texture that the stages are tucked inside is not escaping death, it's standing in it and not running away. If we do not come, give them a pat on the back and say, don't cry, it's not so bad. It is bad to leave everything, everything. and everybody yes. you love. So if we help them be angry and help them be sad and let them express it and cry and not say, you're a man, it's not manly to cry. I yes. think this is terrible. And like everything that you're feeling is okay. And none of it should fit into these boxes. But like the best thing that we can do for each other as human beings is to just sit there and listen to it as it's coming up. Like, when I read it, I shot up in bed. Because I was like, oh my God, this is it. That's Rachel Cusick. You can hear her entire Radiolab piece about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a woman with an incredible life story and death story, wherever you get your podcasts. There's also a link in our show notes, along with a link to Rachel's modern love essay from the New York Times. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. Katie Bishop produced this episode. The rest of our team includes Afi Yellowduke, Yasmin Khan, Emily Botin, and Andrew Dunn. Our interns are Marty Harding and Christy Song. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks, that's P-I-C-S. And you can find the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Death Sex Money. Sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website at DeathSexMoney.org. Thanks to Leah LaFay in Irvington, New York, for being a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money. Join Leah and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. And special thanks again to Rachel and her grandma, Marilyn. Life is, I really think life is good. Life is wonderful. And then I think if people knew all of these things, <laughs> these tragedies that happened in my life, they must think I'm crazy. So anyway, but life is good. So 
That's what I had to say. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 